All right, so when I'm thinking about roles and fulfilling roles, I think about these two guys. If you don't know, uh, that's Aaron Rodgers and Brett Favre, and they're a very unique NFL quarterback couple, if you will. Uh, Brett Favre was one of the best all-time quarterbacks in the history of the NFL, and he was promptly taken over by Aaron Rodgers, who actually turned out to be, in my opinion, and most people's opinion, better than Brett Favre himself. Rarely does that happen in the NFL. The role change there is very unique, right? Because most of the time you have a great quarterback um, and then he gets taken over by somebody who's just not very good or just can't compete. And so I thought about this when I was thinking about roles and how people uh, view their roles. And when, uh, I don't know if you know this, but when Aaron Rodgers took over for Brett Favre right before that, when Brett Favre was still playing for Green Bay, Brett Favre did not like Aaron Rodgers very much. And so this is a quote uh, by Brett Favre. He says, my contract doesn't say that I have to give Aaron Rodgers ready to play. Okay. He goes on, he says, there's no clause that says you have to groom the next guy who's going to take your job or else. It doesn't work that way. Okay. Favre didn't understand his role. I don't think he was humble in it. And I don't think he was diligent to finish it at Green Bay. Okay. And I I think that because he was not willing to help Aaron Rodgers, which I think in my opinion and in his coach's opinions, that was part of his role. He wasn't humble in it because he didn't think Aaron Rodgers could take his place and he could, and he did, and then he wasn't diligent to finish it because, again, at the end, he said, I'm not going to invest in this guy. I'm not going to help this guy, and I think that was a part of his role as well as his coaches did as well. And so today, we're going to look in this passage and we're going to see JTB fulfilling his role despite what makes most of us quit trying to fulfill our roles. Each of us have roles. We have several roles that, that God has given to us, okay, like me, I'm a husband, father, youth director. I'm a son, a brother, an uncle, a friend, a mentor, a student. I have lots of roles, right? And God's placed me um, here in this spot with these roles, and I want to try and fulfill those roles. You guys have roles too, okay? Wife, daughter, son, employee, whatever it is, light, teammate, you know, whatever your role is, you know it, and God has put you in that role. So the question again that I want us to think about as we go through this passage is, how can I fulfill the roles that God has given to me? How can I fulfill the roles that God has given to me. Okay, so we're going to look at it from the standpoint of John. I think he's a great example. Instead of a negative example, I think he's a great example of this. First thing we need to look at, John the Baptist understood his role. I see this in verses 20 through, 22 through um, 28. We'll get a little bit of context in this as well. Um, for those of you who aren't in youth, which is most of you, except for you guys over there, uh, you know, you guys don't have all the context that we've been going through together, but we'll go through some of it a little bit. So look at verses 20 through, uh, 22 through uh, 28 with me. It says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending uh, time with them baptizing. And John was also baptizing and Enon near Salem, because there was much water there, and the people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And there came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, that's talking about Jesus, to whom you have testified, uh, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. All right, we're going to stop there. I'm not going to read 28 yet. We'll read 20 in a second. Okay, so what's going on here? First, Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. Um, it's the very, the very beginning of their ministry. Okay, so if you've been with us in youth, 
uh, we've been going through and looking at John. John starts very early, unlike the synoptic gospels, which are the three other gospels. Okay? And so he starts very early and he shows uh, what Jesus did at the wedding of Cana, turning the water into wine. Even before that, he shows John the Baptist meeting Jesus and saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, and then after that, uh, the wedding of Cana and some other things. And all of this has just happened. So here's a map, um, kind of what Jesus has been doing. I'm going to use the right side because JB always uses the right side. And I can tell because all of you look directly this way. Uh, but basically what's been going on here, uh, this starts at the wedding of Cana. But basically we're unsure exactly where John the Baptist met Jesus. We, I kind of think it's over here somewhere. But anyway, he does the wedding of Cana right over here, right? And then he kind of travels up here a ways. And then he comes all the way down here to Jerusalem. Okay, traveling. That's the line they think that he traveled there. But he comes all the way down to Jerusalem and he has that first time that he cleanses the temple. Remember, he, he goes into the court of Gentiles, and he has zeal for God, and he, and he overturns the tables and gets all the animals out of there and says, you guys are using this in the wrong way. Uh, this is a, a house of prayer uh, for my father, and you guys are using it as a den of robbers. You guys remember that? That's the first time he does that. He does that a couple times. Okay, but it is not Jerusalem. After Jerusalem, he's going to come right up here, and this is where we're at right now. He's kind of right in this area. Uh, John the Baptist is up here kind of in this area, baptizing, and Jesus is right here. Later on, as you guys know, in chapter 4, he gets to Sikar. He meets the woman at the well, and that kind of thing eventually gets on back up to Nazareth. But currently, he's kind of in this area. It's after the Passover, okay? The Passover, he went down there for that. And then after the Passover, he meets this guy named Nicodemus, because at the Passover and after the Passover, it says that he did signs, and many people believed. So he's kind of coming out. His ministry's kind of starting, Right? And uh, now that his ministry starting, it's catching some steam, if you will. This guy named Nicodemus, he meets Jesus and he has this exchange. Okay, that's right before this in chapter 3. All of you guys know that story very well. And so that's kind of the context of where we're at. They're baptizing, and we know actually that it's not Jesus baptizing, it's his disciples baptizing. That's in John 4, 2, if you want to write that down or look that up later. Uh, it says that his, bap- uh, his disciples were the ones doing the baptizing. So they're baptizing over here. I don't know where, some stream, some lake. I don't know what they're, where they're at baptizing, but some body of water over here. And John's up there baptizing. So that's where we're at. Okay, and that's what they're doing. And this, uh, this baptism or this uh, coming out of Jesus uh, kind of ins- or gets John the Baptist's disciples to start thinking. So look at verse 23 with me real quick. It says, John was also baptizing. He's way up there, okay, because there was a lot of water up there. And the people were coming there, and they were being baptized. And John had not yet been thrown into prison, which is important because at this point in time, okay, Jesus' ministry has started, but John the Baptist hasn't been thrown in prison yet. And I think that's important, and we'll see why in just a second. Okay, therefore, in verse 25, therefore, there arose a discussion or a dispute on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about pure purification. Okay, so what is this? What's going on here? In verse 25, it seems kind of weird. Some people um, think that the Jew there may be Jesus' disciples. Maybe it's Jesus and John's disciples fighting. I don't think that because that's a long way from up there. I mean, it could be, um, but there's this Jew or Jews who are um, fighting or disputing with John the Baptist on some sort of purification issue. So this would be some sort of law of Moses purification type thing. And this argument, which there's not a lot of detail on it, but this argument is brought up because John is baptizing people. So there's some sort of thing with his baptism purification that they get in dispute about. And this dispute, it brings up these feelings in John the Baptist's disciples, okay? And that's in verse 26. Look at it. It says, they came to John, this is JTB John, and they said to him, 
Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, okay? That's he who is with you beyond the Jordan. That's when uh, John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's Jesus, okay? So this guy that was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him, okay? So they're jealous. They're jealous of what's going on in Jesus. So why, why are they jealous, okay? We've got to put this into a little bit of context here. Uh, first off, John the Baptist had some disciples that already went with Jesus. Okay, if you think of John and Andrew, not JTB John, other John, John and Andrew, they had already left John the Baptist to go be a part of Jesus' ministry. Okay, so there's already some of their friends, their friend group, their disciple group, their following group that had left and gone over to this other guy. Now, all the people, not the followers only, but all the people are starting to follow. And you've got to think about it this way too. John the Baptist was very, very popular. He wasn't some guy that, you know, nobody ever went to, nobody ever knew about, just some weird prophet in the desert, okay? There, there's a reason that uh, the Pharisees in chapter 1 and, or the religious leaders in chapter 1 come to him and they say, who are you? Are you, are you claiming to be Christ? Are you claiming to be the prophet? Are you claiming, who are you? We want to know. They wouldn't do that if there was nobody following him, right? So he has this big spotlight and now that spotlight is starting to get turned to Jesus. It's starting to get turned to Christ. And so all of John the Baptist's disciples, they start getting jealous. And rightly so, not rightly so, understandably so. I would be jealous too, right? If my guy, the guy that I'm following, the guy that I'm looking to, his role starts to change. And he starts to be no longer in the spotlight, no longer in the front row, no longer really followed or listened to. I would get jealous as well. John the Baptist's, John's response, it shows he understands the role that God has given to him. Okay, look at this in verse 27. It says, John answered and said, and by the way, the rest of this is all John's reply. Okay, and so we're going to look a lot about his reply and how it, how it's, what it says about him. Okay, so John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. So the first thing he says, and the first thing he talks about is God's sovereignty. And I think it's a little bit of a general statement because I think he gets a little more specific in verse 28. But he first he says, hey, nobody can receive anything unless it's given to him from God. JB talked about this last week and how king's hearts are in the hands of God and God is sovereign over everyone. And that's what John's saying too. John says, hey, he's, he wouldn't be where he's at God, unless God's allowing that. Okay, he's going to get a little more specific in a second, but he said, it doesn't matter who he is, God is allowing this to happen. Okay? Uh, this is Jesus. Okay? This is Jesus saying kind of the same thing. This is when he's, uh, he's been arrested, and now he's before Pilate, and he's talking to Pilate, and he says, you, have, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you, um, it has the greater sin. So he's saying, Pilate, hey, you don't have any power unless it's given to you by God. And John the Baptist saying the th- same thing. That guy over there that you're asking me about, he doesn't have any power except from God. But this next statement gets a little more specific, and it shows that he understands, which we've already seen, if you've been with us in chapter 1, that he does understand this, but it shows that he understands Jesus Christ. Look at it in verse 28. It says, you yourselves are my witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I have been sent ahead of him. Okay, he fully understands his role. 
He understands that he is not the Messiah. He's not the one saving Israel. He is not the Christ. He understands that my job is to pave the way, to be the way paver for the Christ, to be the, this way paver um, for the Christ. And, you know, as I was thinking about this, you know, this week and stuff, I was thinking, you know, there's a biblical way to be a parent. And there's a biblical way to be a kid, a child of a, of a parent. And there's a biblical way to be an employee. And there's a biblical way to be a boss. And there's a biblical way to be filling the blank with your role. There's a biblical way to, do the, to have all these things. There's a biblical way to be the way paver that John the Baptist was. And he fulfilled that role because he understood what his role was. He understood where he was supposed to be and what he was supposed to be doing. If I don't understand how to biblically parent, I can't fulfill my role. If you don't understand how to biblically be a child of a parent, you know, you, you can't fulfill that role. If you don't understand how to be a grandparent, or if you don't understand how to be whatever, if you don't understand how to be a church member or a pastor or employee, whatever it is, if you don't understand your role, you can't fulfill it, okay? And it's just like sports or anything else. If I don't understand how to be a point guard, I can't be a point guard, right? I play basketball. That's why I use point guard. But if we don't understand our role, then we can't fulfill it. John the Baptist understood his role, and all of us have a role um, that God has given to us. We have, all of us have a lot of roles that God has given to us, and we need to fulfill those roles, I think. Okay, so number two, John the Baptist is humble in his role. He's humble in his role. This is in two verses, verses 29 and 30. He gives an example, and then verse 30 is short, but it's one of the most, it's probably the most popular thing that John the Baptist um, has ever said, because throughout history, it's one thing that's been quoted by him um, from everybody. Look at it in verse 29. He says, he who is the bride, uh, or sorry, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, so that joy of mine has been made full. He must increase and I must decrease. John is humble in his role. This is one of the hardest things ever to be, right? Usually either we decide we want somebody else's role or we think our role is the best to a degree that we're prideful in it. John the Baptist doesn't here. He doesn't want anybody else's role. He understands his role. And he's also humble in his role and what it is. And so I really like this. Okay, um, John the Baptist, he, he makes a, uh, or gives an illustration. I like illustrations uh, just because I, I don't know, because I like stories and stuff. Probably because I'm kind of dumb. So I like it to be explained to me in a better way. But uh, he gives a story, and I, and I really like it. We have to change it just a little bit for our culture. We'll go through and see what he says. So first off, he, he gives the, the um, illustration of a wedding, right? And so in the wedding, in that culture, the focus was not on the bride as it is uh, today's culture. It was focused on the bridegroom, okay? It's focused on the bridegroom. But before the bridegroom came, there's this friend of the bridegroom. Some of your translations may say friend of the bridegroom. Some may say something else. But it's basically, in today's culture, it's like the wedding planner to the bride, okay? And it's, so it's like this groomsman who takes care of everything. See, this is a quote by Blum. He says, the assistant, that, he calls it the assistant, but this is a friend in my translation. The assistant or the friend acted on behalf of the bridegroom and made the preliminary arrangements for the ceremony. So basically what happened in a wedding was this friend, he'd go around and get everything ready. He'd set everything up. He'd get all the people ready. He'd do everything that the bridegroom wanted done. He'd get it all ready. Okay, and that's like the wedding planner of today, right? 
the wedding planners racing around weeks before the wedding, getting everything ready, making sure the flowers are right, the colors are right, all this stuff is right. Sometimes it's the mom, right? Uh, the mother or mother-in-law or whatever. They're racing around. They're doing all this stuff, getting, the ready, getting everything ready. And that whole time, everyone's looking to who? To this wedding planner or this uh, friend, right? They're all looking to this guy. The spotlight's on them as they're getting everything ready. It's not, it's not in the same kind of spotlight, but it's a spotlight that's on them, and they're getting everything ready. Everybody's looking to them to see what to do, how to do it, what color, what this, that, everything, what song, you know, how many beats in the song do I have to do before I open the doors and the bride comes in, all that stuff, right? So the spotlight is very much on them. But in our weddings today, as soon as that song plays and everybody stands up and the doors open, who is the spotlight on? The bride, right? In that day, it would have been the bridegroom, a little bit, a little bit different, okay, in uh, the groom. So, but in our, think about it in our culture because it's easier. So this MC, this, this uh, whoever it is, wedding planner, mom, getting everything ready, spotlight's on her. She's sitting on the front row maybe, and then boom, the spotlight shifts, and it's all on the bride. And nobody ever thinks about that wedding planner anymore, right? It's all about the bride. And this is the illustration that he's using. He's saying, listen, I'm this preparer, this guy that's going out here, getting everything ready, making sure the colors are right, making sure that the flowers are ready and not wilted, and making sure you know all the ladies have the little, whatever those flowers are called. I don't know what they're called. can't remember. But I'm making sure all this is ready. But now the, the bridegroom, in this case, is here. And the spotlight is shifting. This illustration shows the humility of JTB, of John the Baptist. Because he's saying, listen, this is my role. My role is not the bridegroom. My role is to prepare for the bridegroom, and that's good. That's a good thing. And you know, you know he thinks it's good because at the end he says, so this joy of mine has been made full. Just like a mother or a uh, wedding planner, when they see the bride walk in, for the most part, most of them that I know, they're super happy, right? They, they see the spotlight shift, and it's like, best day of my life. The bride is here. Same thing for John the Baptist. He's humble. He's humble. I love this illustration. Okay? We also know he's humble because of his statement in verse 30. Okay? His statement in verse 30 is awesome. It says, he must increase, the he is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So he must increase and I must decrease. I love this. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it because I want to give you guys time in your girl group rooms. We'll see how that goes. Uh, but I want to ask you a couple questions about each of these. Okay? First, he must increase. Okay? They're talking about humility. He's lifting someone else up, which is a part of humility, almost most of humility is lifting someone else up. In this case, it's Christ. So how can you increase Christ in your role or roles? How can you glorify Christ in the role or roles that you have that God has given you? How can you lift Christ up to, in a way that people will see him and glorify him rather than glorifying you in your role? And that's a hard question. And then the other one, how can I elevate, or you could say increase as well, others in your role. So how can I lift other people up as I'm performing my role? So um, as a husband, how do I lift my wife up? How do I, you know, point the glory towards her? And how do I point the glory towards Christ as a husband? As a father, you know, how do I lift my children up, elevate them, increase them rather than myself? Okay, in this case, John the Baptist is specifically talking about Jesus Christ increasing. But in our roles, we know from other pastors like Philippians and all over the place, that we need to put others ahead of ourselves, count others as more highly than ourselves. So I think we not only can take applications saying that we need to increase Christ in our role, but we also increase others in our role. Okay, so a couple questions for decrease, okay? 
And a lot of times we think humility is only decreasing. Um, you know, at least some people do. I don't know. I, I've struggled with that in the past. It's just like, you know, humility is just tearing myself down. And it's not. It can, it's putting yourself beneath, okay? But it's also elevating others, okay? So there's a, there's a difference there. We're not talking about humility, though, uh, right now. Oh, we are a little bit, but I'm not going to dive into it. But the, here's the two questions for you, decreasing. In what roles are you prideful about your role? And this one's easy, especially for me as a guy. Um, it's easy to be prideful in my role, especially anytime I do something good. That's, for me, it doesn't really depend on the role that I'm fulfilling, but whether I do good in the role or not. Typically, when I do a good job in my role, I tend to be prideful in that role. If I do, do well and somebody gives me an attaboy, then I'm like, I must be pretty good at my role, right? Nobody else can do my role the way I can. And then I remember uh, Balaam and that God used a donkey, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, maybe God can use anybody. Second question, what are some things that will help you remember that God is the giver of the role? Because if God is the giver of the role, you can't take pride in it, right? God gives you the role. He gives you the power to fulfill the role. So you can't really take pride in that anymore. And so that's a good question. There's something just to think about. Oh, the final question, is my role about me? And all of us in here probably say, no, of course it's not. It's about God because we're in church. But in my own mind and in my own heart, a lot of times I make my role about me. Even at like, I could say, you know, my role as a dad, as a father. Okay? I can make that role about me being a father instead of about my kids. The role is supposed to be about my kids, right? But it's not. It turns into a role about me. Okay? So is my role about me? It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be because if it is, we're not being humble. We make our roles about us. Okay? So John the Baptist doesn't do that. He gives an illustration and then makes this grand statement of he must increase, I must decrease. He's humble in his role. He understands his role, what it is and how to do it. And then uh, he is humble in it, okay? And the final thing, before we split off, John the Baptist was diligent to fulfill his role, okay? I'm going to read the definition of diligence really quick before we read this section of Scripture, okay? Definition is marked by persevering, painstaking effort, careful, not careless, or negligent, okay? So are we negligent in our roles? Are we diligent to fulfill someone else's role instead of our own role, are we quick to stop working towards our goal? Those all things would be um, how we would not be diligent. So how is JTB diligent? Let's read it. Okay, verse 31. It says, he who comes from above, this is JTB speaking, he who comes from above uh, is above all. And he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. And he who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, he testified to, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has not set his seal to this. God is true. Or, sorry, has said a seal of this, that God is true. For he whom God sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, and he who does not obey the Son of God does not see life, but the wrath of God abides or remains on him. Look at his message in these verses. And think about the narrative that's going on here, okay? Because I think it's important. John the Baptist, spotlight is shifted. He's not in prison yet, okay? He's still fulfilling his role. He's still talking to these guys. And as this narrative comes, they say, hey, John the Baptist, Jesus is stealing your disciples. What are you going to do about it? He could have said, hey, he must increase, I must decrease. But he doesn't. He keeps talking about Jesus. He keeps talking about Jesus because what was his goal? What was his role? To be the way paver 
to be the one that announces the Messiah. And he even continues to announce the Messiah after the Messiah has already started his ministry, after he's out of the spotlight to his own disciples. Look at it. I mean, he's, he literally starts out he, saying that Jesus is above all, which we already know. Well, those of us who've already been studying this and looking at it together, we've already seen that he's already proclaimed Jesus as eternal okay, and as Messiah. So he knows that Jesus is eternal and Messiah and God. And he says he's above everything in verse uh, 31. Okay? And so he's, he's already proclaiming, hey, Jesus is this Messiah. And he continues and continues and continues to, to uh, proclaim this. Okay, in verse 32 and 33, he's, uh, what he has seen and heard, testifying, no one receives his testimony. He receives his testimony, is not, or has set his seal that God is true. And so here, uh, we've already talked about this a little bit because it, it talked a little bit about it earlier in John chapter 3. Uh, but Jesus' testimony as a whole, verse 32 is like a zoomed out as a whole, and then verse 33 zooms in to personal. So verse 32, it says, hey, nobody's receiving his testimony. Okay, that means like, Israel's not receiving his testimony. People, he, like, no one's going to set him up as Messiah, as king, all this stuff. But there are individuals who, who do and who have. And those who accept or receive the testimony, okay, that would be those who believe in Jesus for eternal life, okay, they have uh, set their seal that God is true. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that Jesus is from God. Right? Because what he's saying is, if I believe in Jesus for eternal life, I'm saying that God is true. I'm stamping it with my seal saying that God is true. So he's saying Jesus is from God. He's not just saying, like in verse earlier when we saw it, he's not just saying, well, God makes some people, he raises some people up, and he sets some people down. Jesus is popular, and, you know, God's allowing that. Okay, he, he did say that as a general statement. Now he's saying, but this isn't just some guy. This is the Messiah. He's God. He's overall, and anybody who accept him, accepts him is accepting God because he is God, and he is one with God. Okay, and then verse 34, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Uh, what does that mean? That's kind of weird. Um, I think it means a couple things. Uh, some people would say it means that the spirit in the past at this point had not been indwelling people fully all the time because it would come and go, you know, and stuff like that. And so they might say, well, Jesus had the fullness of the spirit. Um, and I think that's partly true. I mean, I look at David, I'm like, I don't ever see this Holy Spirit leaving him necessarily. So I'm not sure about that. I think it almost has more to do with the Trinity. No one has the fullness of the Spirit like Jesus because Jesus and the Spirit are one. Um, and that's kind of where I take that. I say, you know what? God, Son, Spirit, Father, Son, Spirit, and they're that unity there. And, uh, and I think that Jesus has a, like we all have the Holy Spirit in us, but we, we aren't the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus was the Holy Spirit. There's, uh, there's nothing of the Spirit that he doesn't have. I know we can't understand that or grasp that because it's just beyond us, but I think that's kind of what it's talking about there. Verse 35 goes on to say, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. So he kind of sums it up there, saying that Jesus is the Son, this one uh, that is taking over the spotlight. He has uh, received everything from the Father. Everything is in his hands. He's, he's got everything. Okay, So he's, again, he's stating his deity there. Okay, And then verse 36, he sums it up. Uh, which 36 goes really good with verse 18. If you guys, you guys can mark it and study it on your own, look at it. But it says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life because the wrath of God remains on him. Okay, we already talked about this last week, but verse 18 of John chapter 3 says, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn or to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. 
Okay? So this is the salvation. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Okay? So that's the save part. He came to save. If we believe in Jesus for eternal life, we have it. Okay? But those who do not obey the Son will not see life. Okay? Why? Because they didn't believe. Now, the word obey can throw some people off there. Um, first off, if you obey the Son, what is the, especially in John, but everywhere, what was the Son's command? What did Jesus tell everyone to do? What did he just get done telling Nicodemus to do? Literally a few verses ago. His one command to Nicodemus, you must be born again, believe in the Son, and you will have life. So that is the, that is the command that you're supposed to obey. It's still believe in Jesus for eternal life. Um, some manuscripts actually have that as believe. I don't know if it's because they were, you know, I don't know why, but some of them has it, have it as believe. Either way, though, it means the same thing, so I don't really see a big difference in it. Uh, because there is one command from the Son, and that is to believe in Jesus, believe in him, believe in the coming Messiah, which is himself. And so uh, this is saying those who believe, they already have that eternal life. They have the eternal life. Those who don't believe do not have eternal life. Okay, And, when you, and this goes again with verse 18, so you guys can look at it. But uh, those who don't believe don't have eternal life, not because Jesus came. That's why he didn't come to judge. Like, like if I, I'm not not getting eternal life. I'm making this really confusing, but I'm not not getting eternal life because Jesus came. Like he didn't come to judge. I, I, he didn't have to come for me to, to get judged. You know what I mean? Like he didn't have to come for me to be condemned, right? I did that all on my own. There, there, he didn't have to come to do that, right? And that's why it says he didn't come to condemn or judge. He came to save. That was his goal. That was the first time he came. He came to save and all who believe in him have that eternal life. And so, Going through all that, we see this message of John the Baptist, right? The reason I think this shows that he's diligent to fulfill his role is because this is the same message that he's been teaching the whole time. Look at it. He never gave up. This would be a time in his life when he should stop. He should stop proclaiming the Messiah. That's, Messiah's already taken over. He doesn't need to proclaim the Messiah anymore from human standpoint, right? He doesn't need to. The Messiah's here. He should just give up. Okay, his words match his actions. We see that all throughout the book. And whenever we see him, Jesus even uh, talks a little bit about it later on. But he, he, his words, what he's saying, matches his actions. He's not prideful. We see that. And then he continues despite trials. There are several trials in John the Baptist's life that we've already seen in John, little or big. One that we noted earlier on is that he's about to get arrested by Herod and killed. And that's a big trial. Um, but even before that, in like... Uh, Verse 20, even verse 22 through 28, his disciples coming to him with this, this problem of Jesus taking over. I mean, that's a trial. If we look at it in the scripture on happening to somebody else, and we're like, that's not, that's not a big deal. But like, if that happened to us, that would be a big deal. That would be a trial in our life. In chapter one, he gets questioned by the religious leaders. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. He doesn't stop because he's questioned by these guys. Um, like I said, he gets in prison later on. Nothing stops JTB from fulfilling his role. Nothing stops JTB from fulfilling his role. So how can he do this? I think that understanding that God is in control and that God has put John the Baptist where John the Baptist is and that God has a role for him to fulfill is how he does this. Okay? And I think we need this as well. We need to understand that God is in control. He's put us where we are, even if we don't think we should be here, even if I don't think that I should be this way or this person or this who I am, even if I don't think that, that's, how, that's where I am because God put me there. And if I understand that God put me there and he has a role for me to fulfill where I am, then we can 
diligently pursue our goal of fulfilling our role. And that's hard because a lot of times I think that God made a mistake in the way that he created me or made me or who he made me to be. And if you look at our culture, the whole world thinks that, right? They're trying to change roles all over the place. Trying to, you know, make guys girls and girls guys and husband wives. And I mean, they're doing all sorts of stuff, right? Why? Because they're not satisfied with the role that God has given them and where God's put them on, here on earth. They say, I don't want to be this. I'm going to change it because I don't want to be that way. But they don't understand that God has a specific thing for them to do within that role. And all of us have roles, okay, that God has given to us, okay, whether that be a child of a parent, a worker, a parent, a grandparent, a single person. It doesn't matter. You have roles, and you have several of them. So how are we going to fulfill those roles? We've got to understand that God has put us there. JTB is a great example of fulfilling his role with understanding, humility, and uh, doing it diligently. I have a couple questions for applications. Then we'll split off into our normal grow groups, and you guys have some questions there as well. So the first application question I have, do you see your roles biblically? Okay, this goes with, do I understand my role? Because you might understand your role from a worldly perspective, but do you understand it from a godly perspective? Because the world and God say two different things about our roles, right? So do you understand your role biblically, how God wants you to fulfill your role or roles in life? Okay, next one. How do you fulfill your roles humbly? What does that look like practically? Practically, how can you be humble about doing the role that God has given you to do? It doesn't matter if you're JB teaching every week or if you're a guy that sets up the chairs, you can be prideful in your role. Sometimes I've probably been more prideful in my role when I'm setting up chairs. <laughs> you know, I get set up and I, and I see all the chairs out there. I'm like, none of these people be sitting down if it wasn't for me. <laughs> it's pretty easy for me to be prideful if you can't tell. So do we fulfill our roles humbly? Do we fulfill them humbly? And then finally, do you pursue your goal of biblically fulfilling your role wholeheartedly? Are you pursuing actually fulfilling your role? Because sometimes we don't even think about it, don't even do it, or we think, you know, I don't have any good roles anymore, or I don't have any good roles yet, or none of my roles count because I have two little kids and I can't do anything right now and I feel tired all the time, so... I'm just going to ignore my roles because I don't have time for it. Okay? That's, you know, just a little bit of me coming out there. We all have roles to fill, fulfill, and we need to do them biblically, humbly, wholeheartedly, pursue them.